Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5. We were in chapter 4 last week, continuing the series, The Year of the Bible. We are going to probably somewhere around Memorial Day finish out the Old Testament, and then starting in June, we will, uh, we will start the New Testament and hopefully have some more good news uh, besides that as well. Hey, if you are watching online, Thank you so much. Wherever you're watching from, thanks for joining us today. Whenever you're comfortable, we'd love to uh, have you either join one of our Western North Carolina campuses or if you're watching from out of state, out of country, let us know how we can help you and how we can serve you. A couple of shout-outs real quick. Stuart Nashley from the metropolis of Rutherfordton, North Carolina, all right, just down the road. All right, Helga from Clyde, North Carolina. Karen from Toccoa, Georgia. All right, I actually know where that is. And then Jay is uh, tuning in from a little place called London, England. So thanks so much for uh, joining us as well. And hey, just say hello to the other campuses as well. Uh, was out in uh, Brevard uh, this week as well and enjoyed that, man, that place. Western North Carolina is beautiful everywhere, but that's like uh, almost like next level uh, out there. So uh, whichever campus you're joining us from, thank you very much for, uh, for being here as we continue to kind of emerge from this last crazy a year, but 2 Kings chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Let me kind of introduce it this way. Um, uh, there's a movie that, depending on your age, you've seen. It's kind of a classic. I would call it still a classic. It's the movie Hoosers, all right? And so Hoosers is starring Gene Hackman and a bunch of other folks, but Hoosers is basically a a movie uh, about a true story that happened in Indiana basketball uh, years and years before that. I think the movie came out in the 80s, and it was talking about the true story of a little backwoods Hicktown basketball team that uh, overachieved and went through a ton of different tribulations and trials and overcame and overachieved, and they made themselves uh, the champions that got to go to the championship game at that massive place there in Indiana where they were going to play in the state championship championship game. And when they, there's a scene where they walk in to this massive room and they're overwhelmed because it's a place that's a hundred times bigger than they had ever played in. They're playing a school that is 10 times bigger than any school they'd ever played. And Hackman can kind of tell, it's like, man, they are just like overwhelmed with the scope and the size and the situation of what they're about to walk into. And so he does something I think was genius. He just has one of the guys take out a tape measure and he goes up there and he, he's put somebody on his shoulders and he, and he measures basically from what is the rim to the floor. And it's like 10 feet, 10 feet standard, all right? Then he's like, okay, I want you to go to the free throw line and measure from the free throw line all the way to the, where the rim is. And they measure it and it's 15 feet standard. And his whole point, his whole lesson to his team was, listen, the scope might be bigger, the situation might be more intimidating, but bottom line, basketball is still basketball. It's still a game, the rim is still 10 feet, the free throw line is still 15 feet. It's the same game. It's simple, just do those things you know to do. And I, that's what came to mind when I saw the passage today is, the Christian life, even though it can have some times where the situation is intimidating and the scope is overwhelming, bottom line is the Christian life overall is relatively simple. The Christian life is basically, listen, God created you, loves you, bought you back if you are a Christ follower in spite of your rebellion, pays for your sin debt on the cross, then woos you back to himself to have a relationship with him solely based on unmerited grace, nothing you can do. 
And then from that moment on, from whether you are 10 or whether you are 60, from the moment that you are brought to faith in Jesus, the rest of your days, the umbrella purpose of your life is then to point people to Jesus and what he's done for you and to say, you know what? The good news that God gave to me, God can give to you. What God did in my life, God can also do in your life. And so what we're gonna see today is a story, actually an intersection of two stories. There's a story of two people, both of whom are in pain. One is an unbeliever who has got a terminal disease, and one is a little girl who has been through tremendous pain. Her family had been uh, either put in slavery or had been murdered. She had been taken into captivity. She had been kidnapped, and she was now working for this first guy's wife. And these two stories intersect And what they show us is a bunch of stuff, but what they show us is what God is doing all over Western North Carolina and even all over the world every single day. It's basically the theme of every video we show that always ends with God at work, God at work. It's like, this is the way that God works. And he intersects these two stories just like he's intersected some people in your life and you have been intersected in other people's life. And it answers the question also, what's God doing when I can't see what he's doing? When I see no evidence of God at work, what might God be up to in that situation? So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna, there's 15 verses in this passage. All right, so we're gonna work through the story for about 10 minutes. Gonna give you a little bit of background and then I'm gonna just give you two principles that you see. And then we're gonna end up basically, there's somebody in your life that God has intersected you with them. It could be a neighbor, it could be a teammate, it could be an employee that you work with, it could be somebody who works for you, it could be any number of different things, and we're going to pray for them. So look at the story, and let me kind of give you a little bit of commentary on it. Second Kings chapter five, all right? Naaman, that's like character number one, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the writer is intentionally ironic when he lists all of these achievements, all of these accolades, all of these things, and then he ends it, but he was a leper. And so you've got a guy who was probably number two in the country, number one in the country of Syria at that point was a king named Ben-Hadad. But this is like the prime minister. This guy has a great job. He's got great respect. He's got people to look up to him. His boss loves him. All this stuff is going awesome, except it says, but he was a leper. Now, loved ones, leprosy in that day and time was by far the most feared disease that there was around. In that day and time, it was 100% fatal. It would typically start off with like a little spot somewhere. You might might not even notice it for a while, but then that spot begins to grow and grow and grow, and then it begins to attack the nerves, and literally, it was a death sentence. It might take time, but little by little, it would grow, it would debilitate you, and it would eventually kill you. And so in spite of all the achievements, in spite of all the awards, in spite of all the recognition, in spite of all the medals, all that kind of stuff, he has everything, but he's literally falling apart. So here's where the story gets, where he intersects two people. It says, now the Syrians, that's who Naaman worked for. Now the Syrians on one of their raids, 
uh, back in then, uh, Syria and Israel were battling with each other. And part of the strategy was they would do these border raids and they'd go and snatch people and grab people and take them back to be slaves. Typically what they would do this year, they would, they would kill uh, usually the mom and the dad, but they would take maybe the boy and they would take the girls back with them. And so that's what he's referring to. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that my Lord, talking about Naaman, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, if you were in here last week, the prophet she's referring to is a guy named Elisha. There's Elijah, and then after Elijah, there's a guy named Elisha. And there's more miracles in this little section than almost any other place in the Bible. And so he uses Elijah and Elisha in great, great ways, but here's this little girl whose family had been taken from her, and we'll come back to this. You see no bitterness, and you see no anger. You actually see concern from a little girl who, and don't, don't whitewash this where you're like, oh, that's a cute little story. Listen, her family had been taken. She had been kidnapped, possibly trafficked out. She's now working for the wife of the guy that more than likely was responsible for her pain. And she's like, man, there is a prophet that could change things. Now, one note that I had not put together until this week is when Jesus refers to this story in the Gospel of Luke, he lets us in on the fact that up until this point, Elisha had played no role in healing any leper. In other words, it wasn't like he was down the street doing, you know what, all the lepers who come to me, I will clean. There hadn't been one, but somewhere in the heart of this little girl, somewhere in her compassion for the person who had actually done her wrong, she's like, I gotta get him to God somehow. Somehow, some way, I'm going to point him to God. And so she tells her mistress, his wife, hey, there's a man of God. If the master can get to him, I've seen enough to know that God can do something in the master's life. And so here's the way, and something told them, listen to the little girl. Maybe it was her joy in the midst of pain. Maybe it was the fact that, you know what? She wasn't just wanting him to die right off the bat. And so Naaman went in and told his Lord, that's the king, there's only one person above him, all right? Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. Now I know that might, that last part might seem a little bit weird. It's like, take yourself, you know, $10 million and you know, 10 suits. That just doesn't, but suits were and clothing back then. I'm going to take a bunch of stuff to the preacher. All right. Sounds like preachers and sneakers. Now I'm going to take a bunch of stuff to the preacher including 10 sets of clothes. In other words, this guy, the preacher's gonna be blinging. If nothing else, this guy is gonna dress nice by the time this whole story's in. But he says this, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. In other words, hey, I got a letter of recommendation, got a reference letter, here's what I'd like you to do. And as you might expect, the king doesn't take it that well. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes. That was a sign of grief and mourning. Tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive? 
that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. In other words, what he's saying is he thought the king of Syria was giving him an impossible task to such an extent that when he's like, I can't help this guy, he's like, well, I asked you to do something you didn't, so now we're going to war. Uh, Verse eight, but when Elisha, the man of God, and this is key, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, Elisha has got enough spiritual insight to think, you know what, this might not be just about leprosy. This might not just be about job loss. This might not be just about a marriage that's struggling. This might not be just about a prodigal who is rebelling. God actually might be up to something in this man's life. And so to saying, I'm busy or I don't like him or whatever, he's like, send him on down. And man, when he comes down, he comes down with all the all the banners, all the pomp and circumstance. And so just kind of imagine this with me. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house, which again, horses and chariots, like what's the big deal? In our day and time, it would be like the VIP. He shows up at church and he's got, he's got the limos. He's got the little flags on top of the antenna. He's got the guys with the walkie talkies and the earpieces and he's got the security and he's got all of that stuff. I mean, this is that kind of deal. And it's important to realize that because here's the way he's getting treated. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. He sends an intern out to talk to Naaman. I mean, how'd you like to be that guy? How'd you like to be the intern that gets sent out? Go out and tell Naaman, who by the way, leads raids and kills people. Go out and tell him, you know what? Dr. Elisha is a little too busy to come and talk to you. I mean, Naaman might have poked in and looked in the window and Elisha's in there, he's watching HGTV or he's watching SportsCenter or something. And he's like, listen, I know he's not too busy. And even more than that, he's like, I want you to go wash in a nasty, dirty river uh, seven times. Now, by the way, I want you to notice the pattern in this story because it happens over and over and over and over again. Over and over and over again, don't miss this. Over and over and over again, Naaman gets insulted. Naaman gets put down. Over and over and over again, Naaman gets offended. God insults Naaman again and again and again. And what you and I have to keep in mind is the gospel in and of itself is offensive. It is not a compliment when we talk about the good news of the gospel. It's not a compliment When we say, you know what, you cannot save yourself, all right? God has got to save you. The only thing you and I contribute to this whole equation is our sin. And God insults him over and over again because Naaman has got to come to the end of himself. He's got to strip away the pride, the independence, and he says, go wash in the Jordan. Go wash in the Jordan, which is about at this point, it's about somewhere between 15 and 20 miles away. And so you can, here's, here's a few more verses. Here's Naaman's reaction. Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought, means I have a preconceived notion on how the preacher was gonna act. I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand around over the place and cure the leper. In other words, I'm a VIP. I expected to be treated like a VIP. 
I expected this whole healing thing to kind of be like the Super Bowl halftime show. I expected him to come out and Jess to fly over and Beyonce to walk out and sing a song and this, all this stuff to happen. That's what I expected. And you sent out an intern to tell me to go wash in a river. And then he, are not the Abana and the far, far, the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? The, actually, the facts are correct, correct. Comparing the Jordan to these two rivers, he names are like, I don't know, uh, it's like comparing the French broad, all right, to the Davidson, okay? It's, it's not, they're two different things, right? You get in one, you get E. coli, you get in the other one, and you get a nice trout, okay? They're very, very, very different. And so in this case, he's like, man, why are you telling me to go bathe in the French broad when I can go up to Transylvania County and bathe in the Davidson? The rivers of Damascus, they're better than the waters of Israel. Can I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and he went away in a rage. A few more verses. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, it's just a term of endearment, a term of respect. It is a, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Now, real quickly, this is just more sidebar. If you're a leader, don't miss this little sidebar of just the, not the IQ, but the EQ of these people that are around Naaman. If you're in a relationship with anybody, maybe you're in a D group, maybe you're in a David's man, maybe you're in a connect group, whatever you're in, understand what they were doing here. They were, they were talking to him about a blind spot, but they gave him the easiest on-ramp to get back in a good place. They're like in love. And he's saying, listen, if he'd have told you to do something difficult, if he'd have told you to take the ring and throw it into the land of Mordor, or throw it into the furnace or whatever, you would have done that. All he's asking you to do is just go to a river, take a little trip and get wet. That's all he's asking you to do. He's like, he actually said to you, wash and be clean. And so he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And I just stop right there. If you're new to Bible study, you never even read this story. Some of you are new to Bible study. You've never read this story either. Point is, just think about what was going on there. Seven times. You're like, why did he say seven? I, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know. But I can picture that he goes down the first time he comes up and he's like, I told you, this is stupid. Still got leprosy. Second time, same thing, third time. And you can just imagine, he's like, this is the dumbest thing in the world. I told you all this wouldn't work. And the people around him are like, just do what he said seven times. Seven times, you've only gone three. Go another one, four times, five times, six times. This is, this. I feel foolish doing this. But he goes down the seventh time and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Now, um, as you go on the story, I just kind of want you to understand what God's doing here, because verse 15 is like the exclamation point. Don't miss this. Verse 15, the first part of it says this, then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him. Now question on the floor real quick. If somebody healed you, if somebody you looked at was responsible for you being healed of a terminal disease, what would you have said? You would have said, thank you for saving me. If a doctor had operated on you after a car wreck or something and saved your life, and then all of a sudden you come to and you see the doctor, remember, he's never even met Elisha at this point. He's never met him because Elisha sent out the servant. You would think he'd say, Elisha, how do I, how can I thank you? Man, you're a miracle worker. He doesn't do, or 
my leprosy is gone. Here's what he says. Doesn't even mention, doesn't even mention the leprosy that he had. Here's what he says. And he said, behold, I know, I know experientially that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. In other words, I now know there's no God except the biblical God. I now know I didn't just need healing on the outside. I needed healing on the inside. And what you see is this is the way that God works over and over and over again. No mention of leprosy. All he's looking for is like, you know what? Here's the point you gotta understand. Naaman was not looking for God. Naaman wasn't looking for God. Naaman was looking for a cure for his issue. But what ends up happening is God gives him something far more than the cure he was actually looking for. And that is the way God works. This is actually the way that in some ways you can say God saves. This is the way, this is the way how, this is how God saves. The point of the story is not that every leper, if they go down to the Jordan River, will get their leprosy clean, that's not it. The point is to show you and I how God uses these things to bring people to himself. Naaman had everything he needed. He had accolades, achievements, respect, wealth, honor, all that stuff. So listen to me, in love, what God does, boom, is God drops a boulder in Naaman's life. Allows it, causes it, whatever you wanna call it, he drops a boulder of leprosy in his life. And by the end of the story, even Naaman would say that leprosy was the greatest thing that had ever happened to him because it exposed the emptiness that otherwise he would have ignored. Over the last several years, four or five years, we have seen thousands of people baptized at Biltmore Church. Thousands of people baptized at Biltmore Church. And when you hear the stories of how they came to Christ, because when that happens enough, particularly with adults, you start to see a pattern over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it's the same exact story with one, one variant. And as we've talked about before, every adult conversion that I can think of, everyone that I can remember, everyone that I've ever heard, I'm sure there's an exception, but of those thousands of adult conversions that then follow through with baptism, their stories are the same. The names are different and the boulder is different. That's the only thing that's different. The story is the same. I was walking down the road, things were going fine. I thought God was a crutch. I thought Christianity was for the weak. And then boom, God dropped a boulder on my life. I didn't think I needed God. I thought I was too sexy for my shirt and then boom, the boulder came in my life. Now what you and I gotta realize is that boulder is the variant. That boulder changes all the time. The boulder could be, uh, you know what, I was going along, didn't think I needed any help from God and then my marriage started to disintegrate and I couldn't do anything to stop the downward trend. So some guy invited me to church. I was walking along thinking it was awesome. And then all of a sudden we started having kid trouble and I realized, man, I can't change this. Something's got to, something's gotta be different. 
I was walking along thinking everything was awesome. And then I got that call from the doctor that everybody kind of thinks, you know, it's someday the other shoe is going to drop. And I got that phone call. And they're like, yes, it is cancer. Yes, it is this. It's the boulder. Maybe it was a personal failure. You disappointed yourself. I thought I was better than that. Maybe it was an addiction that you could not kick at all, whether it be alcoholism or pornography or drug addictions or whatever it is. You're like, I thought I could beat it and I just can't. Some people, the one we've heard, especially in the 20s and 30s is this, you know what? I had this guilt and this shame and I felt like what I did was who I was and it felt like I couldn't do anything. It was like Macbeth. It's like, out spot, you know, I can't get this. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I try to rub the stain out, I can't get rid of the stain. And I finally, 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 that boulder got my attention. It woke us up. And maybe it's just the fact that you're in here and you're a successful businesswoman and this is, you got your five-year plan and you achieved that. You got your 10-year plan and you achieved that and you raised yourself up through that whole thing and everything's going awesome and you're still empty. And the reason is this, is that accolades and achievements and awards and low handicaps and all that stuff, those are good gifts, but they were never meant to actually satisfy the soul. And the problem is sometimes that stuff just placates it. It just is almost like a, it just dulls the senses of that. And uh, so what happens is, is God oftentimes has to wound us so that he can heal us. And Naaman is humiliated. Naaman's humiliated. But in his humiliation, he didn't just get the cure. He found what was better than the cure. And what you and I have to realize is this. I like the way Keller puts it. Keller puts it this way. The gospel is bitter on the outside, but sweet on the inside. Man, I love that. I should have put it in the notes. Keller says the gospel, it's bitter on the outside, but it is sweet on the inside. It is bitter on the outside because on the outside, it ends up stripping away all our pride and all our stuff that we have been holding on to. But on the inside, it's like super, super sweet. Why? Because the cross itself, the cross destroys our pride. What the cross says is, you know what? God's verdict over my life, over your life is that, you know what? You're dead in your trespasses and sin. That's bitter to taste. That's bitter to swallow, but it's sweet on the inside. Here's a verse you need to kind of put to the side there just so you understand how God works in your life and your neighbor's life, and that is this. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this. He says, the word of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. The word foolishness there is the word moriah, which we get our word moron from, moronic from. In other words, the word of the cross, the word that with all these technology advances, with all the stuff going on in our world today, the word of the cross says that the most important singular event in all of human history is that a poor Jewish man died on a tree 2,000 years ago to pay the sin debt of the world, and then God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. The world today says that is foolishness. That is moronic. That is absurd that you would think that, and people say it loudly and clearly today. They do. You need to understand that. There's one, uh, I think it's Gory Vidal. Gory Vidal said, the Christian faith is a ridiculous faith. Ted Turner says, you know what? I don't want anybody dying for me. But it's not just today. You go back in like the third century and I showed you this painting one time. There was a painting that was found actually more graffiti in Rome and it had a, had a drawing of a guy that was hanging on a cross. There's a guy down there worshiping at the foot of the cross, but on the guy, the figure on the cross, he has the head of a donkey. And on the caption, it says, Alexamenos or Alexander worships his God. In other words, even 1,600 years ago, they're like, the word of the cross, the fact that 
that a God would die for you, that is foolishness. That's moronic. But loved ones, that is exactly what the Bible teaches over and over again. And if you're here, by the way, you, you can't even come to Jesus unless you are humbled. Man, I, I, this was grieving me all week. I, it is so easy still in the Southeast to misinterpret religion and ritual with relationship. And what if God in your pain has something actually better for you than the cure of your pain? You're like, man, my life is just falling apart. It's like, it's just, it's just, it's going to hell right now. I don't know what in the world we're going to do. And you fill in the blank. What if God actually allowed that pain in your life to wake you up from trying to fill in that hole in your heart with everything but him? And we're going to go to kind of what God does after this. But if that's you, if whether you're online or whether you're here, whether you're at Hendersonville or Brevard, please don't mistake ritual and religion for the relationship through the gospel. If you've not ever actually repented and embraced Jesus, you can do that with your eyes open in your living room, wherever you are. And just like, you know what? Just like that little girl forgave. I believe that when Jesus is on the cross and he says, forgive them, they do not know what they do. Somehow that could count for me. And now I believe that. I believe there is no God except the God of heaven who sent his son Jesus to die for me. And God will save you. That's what the Bible calls calling on the name of the Lord. But here's what I want to say. There's a lot of Christians in here, and this is going to get, this is going to get kind of ugly for us, but it's got to get back. As we emerge from this deal, we got to get back on mission. Because if God has saved you, then you're called a disciple of Jesus. If God has actually saved your disciple, the word disciple is used in the New Testament like 200 some odd times. The, the word Christian is used like three times, and it's usually used as a term of derision. So once God saves you, make no mistake, whether you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, whoever you are or whatever you are, part, the big part, the umbrella part of your life is now, this is how God sins. This is how God sins. Who's the most powerful person in this story? It's not the king. It's not either of the kings. Certainly not Naaman. It's not even Elisha. Elisha doesn't even come on the scene till like verse 16. He just, again, he sends the intern out. I would submit that the most powerful person in this story is the little girl. She is captured by a raiding party. Her family is either taken captive, sold off, or killed. At this point, she is at the bottom of the bottom of Syria's social structure. Question, how differently would Naaman's story turn out if she had not spoken up? How differently would Naaman's story have turned out if a little girl who had no power, who had no prestige, who had no platform at all, how differently would his story have turned out had she not spoken up? There are people under the sovereignty of God that are in our lives that their story will turn out differently if you and I do not speak up. And a lot of times the speaking up is speaking through the megaphone of your pain. This little girl had every reason to not speak up, particularly to Naaman. I mean, how would you have treated or thought about somebody if they had snatched your parents, killed your brothers, taken you captive, put you to work as a slave? What would your attitude be toward those people? True confessions, I'll tell you what my attitude would be. 
barring a miracle in my heart, my attitude would be when I found out that joker got leprosy, I, I would like to be going, praise God, praise God. I hope your leg falls off. That's what I hope happens. I hope you shrivel up like an old man and just die. That's what I hope. Because I remember what you did to my parents. But amazingly, amazingly, somewhere in there, maybe this is what they saw in her life. Amazingly, somewhere in there, she not only understood that she had to forgive them, but she did so because she somewhere in there understood God had forgiven them. So here's the question. What if in the midst of your pain, and it's okay to say, God, please take away my pain. That's okay. It's not this sermon. It's okay. God, please take away this pain. This really hurts. The Bible said he is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Bible says he hides your tears in a bottle. So I'm not saying that's, not, that's a good prayer to pray. But as you pray, God, take away this pain, also add, God, until you take that away, would you please glorify yourself in the midst of my pain? Because here's what we think. And here's one of the many fallacies of the whole prosperity gospel. There's about 10 of them, but it, one of them is this. One of them is we think that people out in the world that we work with and go to school with are super impressed when we get blessed. Man, he hit the lottery. Man, his investments came through. Man, her family's like totally in great order. Is there some truth to that? There is some truth to that. And so what we gotta understand is when God Abrahams me and blesses me, I wanna show him people, you know what? I can be in love with Jesus and be blessed at the same time. But people are, take notice more when the investment doesn't come through and you still love Jesus. When somebody hurts you and you still have joy. When that spouse walks you out on you for a younger model and you still don't lose your faith, people are like, man, something is going on that cannot be explainable. So here's what I would just simply say. Uh, God does want to use you. This is what we, I, I never tire of saying this. God wants to use you. God wants to use you. God wants to use you. He wants to, you're like, I, who am I? I'm an Uber driver. I'm a waiter. I'm a school teacher of middle schoolers for Pete's sake. God wants to use you. And that's the pattern he uses. You're like, oh, there's two reasons that we tend to be secret agent Christians, number one, we don't want to get rejected. What will they say? But here's the second one that I also, you also see is, you know what, I don't know, I don't know what to say. What if I mess it up? So here's some good news for you. This, this ought to make you relax just a little bit. Like, I don't know what to say. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of new to the faith myself, and I know like two verses, and those are like paraphrased at best. Listen to me, relax. God is the one who brings people to repentance and faith, not you. God is the one that softens the heart. God is the one that convicts the soul. God is the one that arranges the circumstances in your friend's life in order for them to get to the point that, you know what, I need to turn from my sin and embrace Christ. God is the one that does that, okay? Relax, but be intentional. Be intentional. Evangelism is basically living life with gospel intentionality. That's what it is. It doesn't mean that you have got to go down there and hold a sign up and saying, you know what, the end is near and turn or burn or you think it's hot today, you know, think about hell. You don't have to be that guy, all right? You're not called to be weird, all right? But you are called to be an ambassador. And so there's a hundred ways to do that. But just understand, God's the one that saves, but you and I are the vehicles. 
So God does want to use you, be intentional. And I say that because we look at stuff like Little League and ballet and competitive dance and all this kind of stuff. We see those as distractions and they don't have to be. They don't have to be. That's where God puts you. So be intentional right there where you are. It's easy to get distracted. I've told you this story once or twice before, so let me give you the quick two-minute version to show you how easy it is to be distracted, even doing the best of the things. True story, two-minute cliff note version. I'm in seminary. I was still single, so what, Lori and I were not even married at that point. I'm studying late at night for a personal evangelism final. True story. A guy named Dr. Roy Fish was my professor, and it was personal evangelism. That is, I mean, the irony, that's what the class was. I'm studying for a personal evangelism final the next day. There was no caller ID back then, but the phone rings. I pick it up. It's a, it's a buddy from college who I'd tried to share Christ with a number of times with no interest at all. And here we are, fast forward like three years later. Three years later, his name is Greg. I get a call from him and he just starts talking, just talking, da 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 da, da just talking about nothing. And then pretty soon we start going, I don't even remember how the segue happened, but somehow we're starting to talk about the gospel. I share the gospel with him, lead him to Christ right there on the phone. Now, while that's awesome, and I hung up the phone thinking, man, that's pretty cool. I led a person to Christ on the phone the night before my personal evangelism final. What was sobering was how close I was to not picking up the phone. What was even more sobering is when I met with him a few months later to kind of do some discipleship and some follow-up, he said I had called several of the other guys that we knew in college and they all just had this just kind of blow and smoke and all this kind of stuff and you were the last guy that I was gonna call. And if you didn't have the answers that I needed, I had a nine millimeter sitting on my bed and I was gonna take my own life. The point is this, how close was I to being distracted by a good thing and I missed the best thing? So listen to me, please. When you talk about Little League and hobbies and all that stuff, it's not quit that and go to seminary. It's not quit that and come work at the church. It's realize God put you in that neighborhood. God put you at that hospital. God put you at Borg Warner. God put you at that school. God put you on that team for you to just live life with some gospel intentionality. Just gospel intentionality. And you're like, well, you know, that's just for the experts. It's not. If you are a disciple, of Jesus, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Can I say something that, uh, I'll just say this, I love you, I love you, I love you, but if things do not change for you, some of you have been Christians for 20 some odd years and you have never, ever, ever been personally involved in somebody repenting and embracing Jesus. I'm not saying that to try to come down on you, I'm saying that number one, you're missing out on the most invigorating personal thing you'll ever see. And if you don't lead anybody to Christ, what you end up doing is gazing at your navel and finding complaints about everything. But when you lead somebody to Christ, whether it be the prison or whether it be the Ingalls or whether it be on the ball team, everything changes. But my point is, my question would be this, is if it's been 20 years and you've never personally involved yourself in somebody enough to watch them come to faith in Christ, it's one thing if you're trying, can you actually call yourself a disciple? You're like, well, that's harsh. Actually, Jesus said, you know what? I chose you that you would go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so is it not a logical question to say, you know what? If I got 20 years and there's no fruit of evangelism, no gospel intentionality, am I a disciple? A disciple means a follower. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So the question is, if I'm not a fisher of men, am I a disciple? 
You're like, well, I don't know all this stuff. I don't know how to do it. Here's about, here's a, because some people are like, I'm not a people person. I'm not a people person. Man, I wish you could get this kid. I'm not a people person. This has nothing to do with your personality. It doesn't. Has nothing to do whatsoever with whether you're an eight or an extrovert or any of that stuff. You cannot say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm not a people person. You can't say that. As a follower of Jesus, you have to be a people person. Just the fact that you care about people, you pray for people, you love people, you help people. To say I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not a people person, that is, that's moronic. That is moronic to say that. So you're like, how do I do that? Let me just, let me fire down a few ways real quick. Um, some of you are like, this can be done day and time. Again, I'm, how about this? Uh, and I, I've done this a hundred times and I've never had a bad reaction. Now I might have one tomorrow or I might have one on a plane or something, but here's one. If uh, somebody's about to serve you and don't be the weird guy. Okay, I don't know how to say that. If, um, just ask your friends, am I really socially awkward? Okay, just ask them. If they say, yeah, man, just figure out a way to not be as much, all right? But this, it's gonna be awkward enough just to say this. Somebody serves you food, let's say. It's not, it's not that awkward to simply say, uh, hey, uh, we're Christians, we're gonna pray for our food. Is there anything we can pray for you about? I have never, ever, ever, ever had somebody go, no, do not pray for me. I'm an atheist, don't pray for me. Never had that, never had that. I've had some say no or pray for my cat or something like that, but I've never had somebody go just lose it by that. Just, hey, how can we pray for you? We're gonna pray for our meals, anything we can pray for you about. Yeah, it's been a tough year, can I get some more hours? Yeah, my, I mean, you won't believe the stories that come up if you just show enough care just for that. I've had people say, I lost my baby Friday. That was like two months ago. Any way we can pray for you? Lost my baby on Friday, this was Sunday. Please pray for me. Here's another one. Uh, just, hey, invite them, to, invite them to church. Invite them, me and Andrew. Just, hey, come and see. I don't know what to say, but, you know, hey, come and see. They'll love you. It's good coffee. Or, soon as we can serve coffee here pretty soon. Whatever it is, inv invite them to church. Invite them to Wake Weekend. On social media, share a clip that the comms people put out about God at work. Somebody... I mean, somebody, uh, you see something about like the Navy SEAL a month ago when he came to faith in Christ and you know somebody who's also kind of a cynic or I'm not sure this is all working or whatever, send them that, all right? Instead of sending them some political deal that you've got, send them a testimony. Uh, parents, first mission field you have are your kids. Get that Jesus Storybook Bible. If you've got up through elementary, this story today is actually in that Jesus Storybook Bible. I mean, how easy, I don't know how to put it any easier to say, here's a story, here's what it's about, here's the application, and it's on page, I can't remember what page it is, it's on page such and such in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Like, what do I do? Just read it to Scooter, okay? Just read it to him and ask him what he thinks. That's at least Discipleship 101. Um, leave an invite card when you leave a generous tip. All right, if you don't leave a generous tip, Leave another church invite card, but not ours, all right? So leave an invite card. Um, volunteer, all right? Prison services will be starting back soon. Food distribution, we're feeding 2,500 Western North Carolina food insecure people this week, all right? That's a lot of packaging. That's a lot of stuff. Just help with that. And here's the one that I wanna end with is, is pray for one name 
each day this week. Okay, get one name in your mind right now. Somebody you care about. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friend, maybe it's somebody you're not even that good of friends with, but you're like, man, I know they are far from God. They, I play golf with them, but you know what? We never do segue over to this. Just, just pray and pray. Give me one person, God, and state their name that, you know what? Uh, you save, eternity is real, and God, give me the chance to point people, to point this guy, this lady, to you. So here's the way we're gonna end. Now, at the other campuses, uh, your campus pastor's gonna pray for you. And what, what they're gonna pray is basically just pray scripture over you. Just say, you know what, we know by the word of God, God does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. We know that. We know that that's the reason God is patient in so many ways. We know God has provided for that on the cross. And so here's what I want you to do at all the campuses. And you're like, why do we have to do this? You don't have to do this, but just as a step of faith, like we talked about last week. If you have one person, one person that you, as best you know, does not have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. And you would just say, I'm going to pray for that person with God's help. I'm gonna pray by name for that person each day this week. I'm gonna to commit to pray for that person to come to Christ and I'm gonna pray from today to next Sunday for God to allow me to speak a word, for God to begin working in their heart, but I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna call them Bruce, Fred, whoever, I'm gonna call them by name there. God is gonna hear me voice their name Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If that's you and you have one person, I want you to stay where you are, but I want you to stand uh, where you are. Hendersonville, same thing. Arden, go ahead. It's, 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 just go ahead and stand. If you don't know anybody, there's a different sermon, but you need to have some people around you. All right? Brevard Campus, I just stand where you are. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a chance. And you don't have to say it out loud because they might be sitting next to you. But just I do want you to actually, to God, verbalize their name. Just say, God, I'm praying, and I'll give you that chance. But if you would, just bow your heads and close your eyes. Campus pastors, you guys pray. Father, you have told us that we are to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. God, thank you that you save people, you are at work. Thank you for the sobering reminder that eternity is long and eternity is real. Thank you for the promise that you do not desire any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So we as a people commit that this week, we are going to cry out each day for, and just in your own mind, say, God, I'm praying for this person and just name them. God, our prayer is, is uh, we come out of a crazy year. Nothing was by mistake. Some stuff happened during this last year, so maybe some relationships that started with neighbors that we lived next to for five years and never even gotten to know them. But during this crazy time, we've gotten to know them a little bit. We can call them by name. God, our prayer is we do emerge out of this that you would remind us every single day, this is the mission that we're gonna sing a lot better in heaven. 
We're gonna love Christians a lot better in heaven. What we're not gonna do in heaven is see men and women, boys and girls, embrace Jesus by faith. And so our prayer is that we would see that by the, just by the bunches in the months ahead. God, forgive us for being more concerned about being rejected by them than them being rejected by you. God, give us the burden for our community the apostle Paul had for his Jewish brothers. Give us that desire that says, God, if I could, I would take their place, but I can't. And so our prayer is, God, help us to live with some gospel intentionality. God, for that little league league and those people we sit with on the bleachers, help us to care more about them than even the score. God, for the classes that our teachers teach, that the front lines remind them of that missional heart. God, help us to love people like you loved us. Help us to understand that a little girl 3,000 years ago is a great model. Just point people in our pain, point people to you. So we commit this week by God's grace, by the Spirit's power, that we would call out this person's name every day. In Jesus' name, amen.